listeners, I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? For people like me who love books and the stories behind the books, this show gives me the chance to ask authors about what they write and why they write. Plus, I like to throw in a few odd questions just to get to know each author a little bit better as a person. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Tufa Jallo, author of the new memoir, Tufa, The Woman Who Inspired an African Me Too Movement. Kirkus Reviews wrote this about Tufa's memoir. The author's voice is frank and conversational, and she peppers her harrowing story with moments of humor and humanity that make the book an inspirational page turner. A fiercely readable, potent memoir of a survivor who refuses to be silenced. Tufa, welcome to Author Can I Ask You, all the way from me here in Vermont to you back in your home in the Gambia. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Journey. Did I pronounce that correctly? You absolutely did. Thank you so much for double checking. Tufa, I want to start by reading an opening passage of your book that encapsulates so much, not just the instigating event that you share in your book, but also your voice and your incredible courage. You wrote, in June 2015, Yaya Jamey, then the president of the Gambia, raped me. He has never been charged, never convicted. He thought he would get away with it, tried to erase me. I thought I would never speak of it, that I would remain invisible. We were both wrong, because I am here, shining like the sunrise of the melanated coast. Tufa, you are here indeed. Can you share the circumstances of how you met the then president when you were just a teenager? One of the reasons why I even wrote the book is that I had that question come to me so many times in short interviews before the book. And I always felt like, oh, my God, I want you to know the context. I want you to understand the background and where I am when you look at your geography. And it was important because it encapsulates a dreaming young African girl who's aspiring to study. You know, I come from a small West African country, less than 2 million people. And I was going to school like any other secondary school going kid. And I finished school and I did not have many options like others in other parts of the world. Your options were to go to a college or to go to the university And in order to go to university, you had to have a pass in maths, which I did not have. So I followed in my mother's footsteps, which is to become a teacher because the college did not offer so much. It's not like colleges in America. So I was going to college reluctantly and there's an opportunity to study abroad and have a full scholarship, which is the dream of a lot of us from this part of the world. But we were in a dictatorship for a very long time, for decades. And it happened that that very government were the one organizing this competition. And I participated and I won. It is the equivalent of saying Miss Gambia. And I looked forward to my scholarship. And part of that package is to implement a community project to advance social issues or socioeconomic issues. And um, that is how I came in contact with not only the president, but government institutions in any capacity. And uh, I was 18 years old. Well, I want to say congratulations on winning the pageant because it really is an achievement. But of course, 
in the aftermath, that's what put you in the path, in the radar of the president. And Tufa, after the rape, when you look back at that time, when you had to sneak out of your country for your safety and the safety of your family, what are some of the most vivid memories that you still think about when you think about that arduous journey? So many. Um, And also I think what um, being raped, you know, for some of us survivors, what it does is you build a skill and a muscle to kind of block out some memories, right? And what happens subconsciously as well is that you do block out a lot of other memories that are attached to the rape. But there have been a lot of rediscovering memories that I uh, remember. And if you read the book, you will notice that I did pay attention and they were very impactful for me. Um, I think sleeping outside, you know, being homeless for the first time was a big one because where I come from, that is not the culture. The culture of homelessness, I think, was a shock for me when I left this country. It's a very communal setting and people would leave villages and come to our family home and, you know, people will host you. You know, a cousin that knows a cousin and a brother of a cousin. So for me... The idea of just sleeping in the streets, experiencing it and being in that position, even before I got to North America, was a very vivid memory. You know, I can still smell (laughs) the smell and the images are very wild in my head. But also some of the ones that made me understand that where I come from is a little portion of the universe and the world, you know, like being in the refugee shelter really exposed me to a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures, and also all the other vivid memories where I had to explain and justify why I needed an asylum. I think that whole immigration process is one of my vivid memories. Yeah. The other thing that stood out, though, was the people who did come to your aid that were in your path or made an effort to help. And that was really a vivid takeaway from the book. No, totally. And now I laugh because, you know, I raised it with my grandmother and she believes that it's all thanks to her. She (laughs) believes that is the good (laughs) she has done and all the strangers she has helped who came back to help me. But really, it is amazing. What I was really trying to do at every stage of the book was to really go back to that place, shred away what I do understand now, the nuances I can filter out and just be in that place. And I had to really be clear about the intentions and the acts and the the interactions and conversations I've had with the people that did come to my aid. And to make it very clear that at the time I did not understand how much they were doing to literally save my life um, and to also walk you through what the process of helping is like, because I think that's a broader conversation where we say we are helping people or we are the helpers in a story. And I did not want to tag them as helper or not. I wanted to explain to you what their act of helping was like, what it looked like and what it felt like um, in real time. So, but it is the hopeful part of the story and the book and uh, that there were those people and there are still those people out there who are very helpful in ways that changes lives and keeps us safe. Tufa, would you read from your book? a short passage that you particularly want to share for whatever reason. 
there's a short one, um, I, I guess the dedication and a little paragraph from the acknowledgement. So we can do that. Right. So the dedication goes to all victims whose rapists are not presidents, to all survivors who have paid for survival with silence, may the whispers of our mothers, their mothers, and the mothers before them rise in our throats. I hope we find safety in speaking together. Amen to that. Yeah. The last paragraph and the acknowledgement reads, in April 2021, I sat at the grave of a Gambian teenager, a victim of rape and murder. I felt the coarseness of the soil underneath which she lay with her unborn child. And I knew that whatever hardship I face, it is both my responsibility and privilege to speak for those who have been silenced. I will not rest. If you're traveling this road, remember you are worthy of compassion, of visibility, and of joy. Honor our ancestors for their survival and for all they have done for us, regardless of how they did it and where you come from. No wonder you inspired an African Me Too movement. (laughs) That title still feels um, big in a way. And I am just honored. And I really, I am still here because of the stories that I've been exposed to. And that is why it was very important in the acknowledgement to mention one of those people, like that young woman um, who's a victim of sexual assault, because the truth is that is what keeps me going. I mean, there's no bigger motivation than to realize that many have left us and the crossing I did, escaping and running from my perpetrator, it never, it doesn't always end the way mine ended. And that is a somber reality and a realization that I am always close to, and it keeps me grounded, which is very important in this work and and the journey. Tufa, I want to time travel a little bit. Let's go back in time to before the pageant. Until I read your book, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I didn't know much about life in the Gambia. And I didn't love the way you described your life in your home. Uh-huh. You grew up in this village in a devout Muslim home and a big, big family. And you love your home country. Can you give it a shout out? Why do you love it so much? I think um, I think it is persistent. I love it because I think it is indicative of its people, but also more like it is mimicking its people as a country. It's a country that has been through so much, like the young African girl, or at least in my context. Mm-hmm. It is a country that hasn't tasted what real freedom and liberty tastes like it hasn't found itself it's been ashamed of itself but at every little given opportunity it tries to find itself and as difficult as it is as nuanced as its culture is there's always some sort of room to find oneself and that is something I have come to to be honest and if it's reflected in the book I'm glad because When I did come out with my story, one of the things it did to me or one of the things the reactions did to me is to kind of hate my country for a while. You know, Um, when I ran away from it and I was a refugee in another country, I was unable to see anything good 
about the country. All I saw was the people that abused me, a culture that allowed that, you know. But now I'm at a place where I'm like, oh, we're all really trying to figure it together. And I shouldn't allow people to take away that identity from me as well, because then I will be losing everything. And, and the solution is to own it, accept this is where we are at, and then figure out how are we going to change the paths that we detest so much and hate so much, the paths that are unhealthy so that we can be better. But I do love a lot of things, especially the communal nature of its people um, and the sounds of, of different cultures and languages. I mean, it's beautiful when we do the work that needs to be done. But, you know, then, of course, you have to leave the Gambia, not under the circumstances you were hoping for, which was to get an education. You became a refugee and settled in Canada, and you worked a string of odd jobs, and you continued to try to find out how you could further your education, which was something that was so important to you. But you also noted many times it was also very important to your mother. Yeah. About those years, you wrote, I would never speak of the rape, that I would remain invisible. So it makes me wonder too, if as you're trying to carve out this new life and working these jobs and trying to get an education, what made you change your mind in terms of going public with what happened to you? Um, you know, I, for, for the many years, I really thought I could just pick up from where I left off and being truthful to myself. And as the years went on, I was just not me. And I don't even know what that meant at the time. But I couldn't just move on. And that's not by saying I can't go to school or find a career. I just couldn't settle into myself because my emotions were strong. And who I was at my core is defiant and honest in speaking about where I am at. And until I was able to do that fully and wholly, I was holding back. I couldn't perform great at school. I couldn't even have normal interactions with people because I felt like I had a burden on my shoulders for the longest time. That coupled with me realizing that there's no face to rape in my country really just set the tone for me. And I realized that in order to get back to who I was or to move forward, there has to be some sort of breakthrough for me and for others. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know where that was going to take me. But all I knew was that I could not live with what has happened to me or, or the story. I just couldn't. Well, wow, that's a wonderful message, though, for others to become fully whole. Sometimes a secret doesn't allow that. There's just by some miracle, it felt like a miracle anyway, in these times, Jamee gets deposed in 2017 after 22 years right. ruling the game. Yeah. And a truth and reconciliation and reparations commission investigates his abuse and his killings. You participated in those hearings. What did it feel like to speak out in your own country where, as you said, the country didn't even have a word for rape at that time? I'm not sure if you've got this update, but the Truth Commission has actually came up with their recommendations and fact-finding mission. They've submitted it to the government. And it is just a lot of pride just having the commission affirm 
it because one of the reasons why I went to the Truth Commission is to make so that sexual assault is part of the crimes that the dictator would be prosecuted for because oftentimes they are not. And I thought it was important to be part of the national dialogue, most importantly, the history of the country for other young women to say, oh, okay, even at a transitional justice level, we did include sexual violence and the dictator was officially accused of it. So for me, just to have the commission recommend prosecuting him for raping me, I mean, it is just insane. But also, this is why I did it. And when I was doing it, I wasn't sure that the institution will come through because often they don't for women and survivors of violence. And uh, when I went there, I I spoke as clearly. I, you know, wanted the country to understand what happened and why it constituted rape. And this new development makes it all worth it. It really does. It's interesting. You spoke out in your country and you participated in testimony for the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and you took part on a youth panel for Human Rights Day at the UN. And you're doing so much. And part of the time when you were deciding to tell your story and then following up on that, in North America, the news in this country, for example, related to the hearings for the U.S. Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, who was also accused of attempted rape. And at the same time, the president of the United States also was accused of rape by at least 26 women. And he's supporting Kavanaugh. And I'm thinking, here's a young woman who now is making the decision to go out and confront the former president of her country, it just adds such a dimension to your courage. You've done all that, but far be it from you, Tufa, to stop there. You have created the Tufa Foundation. I would love for you to tell listeners a little bit about that. Yes, I have. And it was really just born out of people reacting to the headlines and realizing that the conversation is bigger than me and I wouldn't be able to do it alone. And and it's like, what can we do? And it's like a lot of women opening up to me. I mean, I really thought I understood the gravity of rape culture in my country until I spoke out and I realized, oh my God, like I have no idea. I mean, family members who have lived with and laugh and, and engaged with, with telling me stories that they have never shared before. But all of a sudden, I was a safe space to share those with. And um, there is no sort of support and facilities or capacity to cater for all of those women. And I figured to set up a foundation to do just that, to provide psychosocial support, to most importantly, change the mindset and kind of redefine what some of those myths are. What are microaggressions? What are all these terms that other parts of the world have moved forward to? And to kind of rethink how do we define or name rape in our languages that gives 
people a sense of the gravity of harm it does onto the person who've been raped. And since then, it's been sensitization. It's been mentorship programs with young girls. It's been creating audiovisual content um, because I have... Uh, been creative and loved the theater and ads for the longest time before this happened. So it's to channel my creative side to retell stories and tell stories from the perspectives that make survivors human and enough and valid and truthful. And that's what we've been doing. And ever since I have not looked back, I've been living my life between the Gambia and Canada, drawing strength from different types of feminist theories and practices. And it's been wholesome. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of, actually. Tufa, do you think you're brave? Yes, actually, which is a lot. It took me a long time. I think this is the first time I'm saying that out loud. You know, it's this thing that all women do, I think. For many years now, whenever anybody says that, I say thank you. Um, And no one has ever also asked me the way you just did. So thank you. Um, And I, my bravery for me, you know, I don't think it's the moment that I spoke up. You know, I acknowledge and, and accept that I am brave because in the face of absolute power and fear, I said no to a precedent and I held on to it even as he violated me. That right there is where I want to replace bravery with shame. So, yes, I was brave. Mm. Yeah. Tufa, I want to thank you for so many things, the least of which is being on my podcast. Yes. It's changed my life learning more about your inspiring efforts. So please keep fighting the good fight. And I wish you so much success and happiness in your life. Thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for your interest. And thank you for spreading survival stories and being a feminist in your own way as well. So thank you so much. Listeners, if you would like to purchase Tufa Jallo's new memoir, Described in a starred review by Publishers Weekly as a powerful story that should not be missed, please visit your local bookstore or wherever books are sold. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, JoniBCole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.